Hello, dear listeners. We come to you with a little bit of news uh, right at the top. Uh, Lise Van Boxel, our longtime co-host, co-founder of the Combat and Classics program, has recently been diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. We wanted to get word out on how you can support Lise and her fight with cancer. Uh, you can go to bit.ly slash fight for Lise. We'd love to see your support on there when we all want to help her out. She's going through this very difficult time. We do have an episode for you coming up. This was recorded before we found out the news. So we hope you enjoy it, but we'd really love for you to go to bit.ly slash fight for lease and show your support. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Wilson. And today we have special guest, Scott Hamrick from OnlineGreatBooks.com. Hi, Scott. Uh, so we are um, having a, 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 a new offer here uh, from Combat and Classics and from OnlineGreatBooks.com. Uh, I'm actually going to be leading a monthly seminar for uh, for Scott and for Online Great Books. Um, it's it's for our for our dear listeners, uh, for our fellow readers. Uh, and so you can right now go to onlinegreatbooks.com backslash combat and register for the seminars that kick off in January. And if you go to that landing page, you could get 25% off your first three months. Shameless capitalism. We try to put it right at the top, Scott. <laughs> we got to pay these podcast bills. Um, so, you know, I, I, I recently found... Uh, onlinegreatbooks.com totally jazzed about joining the team um, teaching with you guys I, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners a little bit about you know where this idea came from and and what the program's about uh, well we home educate our children we don't homeschool right schooling's where you learn how to stand in line and put your name in the top right hand corner you know like <laughs> not interested in that so much uh, children and fish hang out in schools. It's weird. So we do the home education thing. And um, in, in trying to figure out how to maybe best to do that, I realized that with my science background, I, I had missed a whole bunch of stuff, you know. And, and I was trying to figure out how I would best remediate, you know, the deficits in my education. And, uh, and in doing that, being a busy guy, I owned a a large small business at the time and being a busy guy with wife and kids and all that I I couldn't just drop everything and go back to school and um decided I was really well I went to the Colonial Williamsburg I went to Colonial Williamsburg and uh, was looking around there and we went to the house of George Wyeth and uh, he was um, a law professor there at William and Mary College and um, had a big library he had a big library and there was a big round table in that library, and the story they told us there at Colonial Williamsburg is that he would have these young men that went to William and Mary come over to his home, and um, and they would read together. And you can see the books on the shelf. You can see what they're reading. They're reading Plutarch and reading Aristotle and Plato and all the stuff you expect, you know. And uh, and then I started looking into who he had, who those young men were. And it's Monroe and Jefferson, two or three Supreme Court justices, two of the presidents. Uh, it's just colossal people, you know, and he was done, done with, I'm making the air quotes for you listeners. He was done 
helping those young men uh, get their education. By the time, most of them were 15 or 16 years old. They were doing a great books education, you know. And at the same time, I was looking into, you know, Adler's Great Books Movement and stuff John Erskine had done, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So I started a great books group here in my home, and we started meeting on the third Thursday of each month. Uh, I sent out paper letter invitations to uh, six men because I had six chairs in addition to the chair I was going to sit in. And uh, five of them said yes. I sent one more letter out. He said yes, and we started meeting, and it uh, wasn't very long. We had a waiting list to get in the meeting and loved it. And one of the guys in the group is Brett McKay of The Art of Manliness. And he's like, this is great. you got to help some other people do this, man. And at the time, he was launching a service he called The Strenuous Life, which was uh, which is an online community, I guess, to that Brett designed to help people take action on all of this stuff he talks about at the Art of Manliness, developing these sort of traditional skills. And, and uh, he wanted people to do that in the real world. And he said, this is what I'm doing with uh, Streamless Life. And maybe you could do, use something like this to help people do what we do here at your home on the third Thursday. And uh, Gosh, January, January, early January, whatever date it was, of uh, 2018, uh, we opened enrollment for the first time for online great books. I had done some trials for free with Google Hangouts and found out that we could actually do a pretty decent seminar uh, through some sort of you know teleconferencing medium, and uh, we kicked it off. And we're in our twenty, I guess this is the twenty fourth month right now, and we've got you know more people read with us than the University of Chicago now, and uh, it's it's been great. We've got. Uh, we got mo- most of the people that signed up in that first enrollment period are still with us, you know, and um, we we send people, as you guys know, that listen, the books are cheap, you know, cost you a lot of library card costs, and a lot of them are at Project Gutenberg or archive.org, so the books aren't the problem, it's, you know, doing the thing, right, so we send, we send people a text, we send them a book every month, because we want everybody to literally be on the same page. I'm not, a, I'm not a translation snob, but when it's online, it's really helpful. If you say page 16, it's page 16 for everybody. So we send everybody um, we send everybody the same book. Um, we also, we've also found that all the translations um, can be overwhelming to some people, and any barrier to getting started <laughs> can stop people from reading. So we wanted to remove that. So we send them the book. Um, we set reading goals that take the average person about 30 minutes a day, six days a week, three hours a week. We send them reading text message, reading reminders, email reading reminders that get reading reminders in their little app on their phone. And then once a month, we have a two hour seminar to discuss the readings for that month. And like all seminars, you know, it's, you know, it's never exhaustive, you know, they always end and there's, you know, everybody all had, had something else they wanted to talk about. Uh, but it provides people that seminar experience, you know, where, where I think the real, the close reading's done really, you know, where the real reading comprehension starts. The seminars where the, where we start to take action on the book and the book takes action on us. You know, reading, reading's more active than watching a TV show, but seminar is even more active yet. And, uh, it's, you know, as you're, Johnny, as all those people know, you know, it's a big deal. You know, doing that thing with those other people is a big deal. Bringing all those consciousnesses to bear on the text creates something different and more 
you know. So we get that online. And anyway, that's what it was. And that's what it's been. And it's it's been very good. It, we're almost to our, I guess, our, gosh, our th- third birthday. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, I, I'm, I couldn't be more excited that onlinegreatbooks.com exists, that it's it's thriving, that it's growing for, you know, a lot of reasons. One of them is just, you know, as a fellow entrepreneur type, um, you know, seeing something like this come into fruition, get traction. Uh, but then just what you're offering, you know, you're, you're really offering that, I, that wrestle with ideas with, you know, not necessarily like-minded people, right? Because it's <laughs> probably it's, not, it, they're, they're not like-minded, but that's the fun of the seminar, right? Right. Cause you got to come to the table, you got to talk about the work and you're not like-minded, but because these books are so universal, because there's something in there for everybody, like it, it fosters that community. And so you guys have really kind of shaped this to create that. And I'll, I mean, I've also seen it, you know, being a Johnny, I've seen roughly 200 of, you know, similar type of programs that are like, yeah, we're just going to do seminars online and we're going to, you know, try to figure out how to run that as a business. And, you know, 199 of them have not worked out. So I'm really glad that you guys, um, you know, are really thriving and really making something out of this. And I'm, I'm happy yeah, to be a small right. part of it. Um, so I want to, I want to get to, I want to get to Homer, but just one last plug for, I mean, you're, you're listening to the combat and classics, uh, podcast, dear, dear listeners. So, um, you know, you know, we're going to seminar and I know you, you want to listen to the, uh, kind of seminar portion of this, but just to throw it in there one more time, onlinegreatbooks.com backslash combat. Um, I will be leading the seminar. Uh, which might be a bad selling point, depending on if, <laughs> depending on how many of these you've listened to. Um, also, I want to I want to plug Scott's podcast, the Online Great Books uh, podcast. I've been enjoying that. I just finished um, your episode forty nine, Leisure: The Basis of Culture. I really oh, enjoyed yeah. that one. And also, you guys just did Emerson's American Scholar, which we did about a year ago on our pod as well. And it's it's a great uh, kind of short essay speech type of thing so did, did you hear the one we did on uh, emerson self-reliance where i just cried like a little girl <laughs> no but i it is it is hilarious knowing that um you know your your other uh podcast barbell logic um you know and you being a barbell guy and you mentioned how often you cry on the podcast quite often uh, I- <laughs> emerson emerson tears me up you know there's a part in there where he talks about uh, what I think is like the quintessential American or, or like federalist period American guy that uh, starts a newspaper, teaches school, buys a township, you know, does all these different chores. And, you know, and, uh, and even when whatever enterprise he's in doesn't make it, he's not a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, that piece right there just wrecks me every time I read it. I read it out loud on there. School. <laughs> yeah, so good. It's good that, that that speaks to you, and 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 what we're what we're reading today, and what we're going to talk about for a little bit today is is book six of the Iliad, and you picked this, Scott. This was your uh, your choice to do this, and and uh, in the messages that we've exchanged back and forth, Hector and Andromache, um, you know, you 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 use multiple exclamation points multiple times. <laughs> um, so I'd love to let you kind of kick this off. Uh, in talking about book six, um, you know, it, and taken in whatever direction you want to take it, but I have a feeling it's going to have something to do with the Hector and Andromache dynamic. Well, ah, there's so much in here. It's such a weird book. Mm-hmm. Book six is. It's yeah. a lull in the action. You know, they've been fighting and fighting amongst themselves, mm-hmm. and hopefully, hopefully, a lot of you folks have already read this, if not everybody. Uh, but it's a it's a weird, uh, it's a weird chapter, a uh, weird book. 
um, a wall in the action. And um, the, the, fir the first weird thing is this kind of, I don't know what it is, but there's the, the two the two men uh, square off in the middle of the field. It's such an odd thing. Uh, Glaucus and uh, uh, Diomedes square off in the middle of the field, and it's like, man, I don't really recognize you. <laughs> What's your story? And the guy just tells us like his the story of his family, and uh, it's like such an odd, odd thing. But these two men who meet in the middle of the field ostensibly to kill each other probably end up uh, telling their kind of telling their background stories and I don't know hugging it out <laughs> and swapping armor without one of them dying. It's such an odd thing. Um, it, it is. It's very weird, and it comes on that. And this is this is what I love about Homer and, and a lot of great authors, right? Is they'll have these just kind of lines that they drop in here, just like a couple lines, um, and. The the first the, the thing that jumps out to me in that transition from you know the Glaucus uh, Diomedes fight is obviously a big part of the chapter, but there's this little kind of like piece on line twelve where Homer has uh, Diomedes killed off Axylus, Tuthrus's son who had lived in rock built Arisbe, a man of means and a friend to all mankind at his roadside house. He'd warm all comers in, but who of his guests would greet his enemy now, meet him face to face, and ward off grisly death? Diomedes killed the man. And so, like, then, you know, it's just five lines, this character that shows up and gets killed in five lines. But it's weird how Homer drops in, how he was very welcoming to guests, you know? Yeah, friend to all mankind. Friend to all mankind. And I think that this is where the Iliad's potential kind of uh, anti-war stance kind of comes in, or at least like questioning, you know, war to a significant extent, because here's this guy that seems just as nice as Glaucus, you know, and maybe, uh, Diomedes dad showed up at Axelus's dad's house at some point, but they didn't get to talk ahead of time. So Diomedes just kills him, but Homer drives him beneath the earth. Yeah. But Homer just drops this in here a little bit, and I, I wonder if that's to make us think about the kind of uh, randomness of war, the kind of, um, the I don't even know if I want to say cruelty of war, but just the how things don't make sense in war. Because Axelus might have been just as good a guy, and Axelus's family might have just been just as good as Glaucus, but for whatever reason, he's below the earth, and Glaucus gets to walk away today. It's like, wait, 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 let me tell you about my great-granddad. Yeah. And then maybe he makes it. So odd, but the friend to all mankind thing is so is so uh, that that is an interesting line. You know, later on we read the the Odyssey and the, this sort of uh, this this Greek hospitality theme. It just comes up over and over and over again, and um, I think this must have something to do with that. This hospitality theme means so much to these people that to say that somebody was a their roadside house was warm for all that came is a uh, that would have been really virtuous and in a, a compelling i guess to the the people who are listening to this thing uh me you know i live here in my suburban house and like you know don't even knock because we ain't open the door it's such a <laughs> such a foreign a foreign idea to me yeah but it, it's just interesting how he inserts that in there and it, it kind of tees it up you know to that that diomedes and glaucus thing and and you also get you know you i i love also the the that we get another kind of glimpse of Agamemnon here, right? 
Because Agamemnon is, such, is, I think, a much more complicated character than a lot of people think, you know, in their first or maybe second reading of the Iliad. And a, a lot of the complication comes from Homer, who often calls Agamemnon, like, godlike king, mm. you know, and, and has all these kind of, like, positive things to say about Agamemnon kind of in the narrative. But then we get to, like, line 68, and Menelaus is, you know, about to about to spare somebody, right? He's about to say, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll ransom a, a Dristus. And Agamemnon shows up and says on 68, um, ah, would to God, not one of them could escape his sudden plunging death beneath our hands. No baby boy still in his mother's belly, not even he escape. All Ilium blotted out, no tears for their lives, no markers for their graves. Yeah, and, and this guy had just, um, uh, this guy had just a- asked for clemency. Mm-hmm. You know, he just said, you know, take me alive. I'm, I have a rich father. Blah blah blah. No, it's not okay for Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. So, so we're again. It's even it's even stranger yet mm-hmm. that later on we have this uh, we have this uh, hugging it out in the mid midfield. You know. Yeah, it's oh, it wow. is it is such a weird book and it adds so much to like the story as a whole but also to these individual characters like Menelaus you know wants to initially spare the guy right and so you get this kind of picture you don't really get like what's in his head or anything like this but you just kind of get this idea okay you know that's cool we'll just ransom you and then you know out of nowhere Agamemnon boom kills him you know and says I want to kill all of every male child you know needs to die um, yeah, and so so they're 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 they are there fighting on Menelaus's behalf, mm-hmm. and Menelaus is like, yeah, not this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have an opportunity for ransom. That ain't too bad. That ain't too bad. It's not good enough for Agamemnon. All the motive, all the motivations, but behind the this conflict are they're they're they are varied and at odds. It's a uh, it's really kind of disgusting. The whole thing's disgusting. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot of there's <laughs> well, there's a lot of irony here too because I mean the whole thing starts off with you know Singo Muse of the Rage of Achilles, and then you know look how often Agamemnon is really pissed off versus Achilles, you know, yeah, like Achilles really doesn't get that angry that often, you know, and even when he is quote unquote angry, you know, like if you get to the embassy in, in book nine, he's so nice, you know, <laughs> and he's just. Very, very kind, very cordial, um, and Agamemnon's flipping his shit about every five minutes in this book. Well, you know, if you ever meet somebody that's like uh, that's very, very skilled in martial arts, you know, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever, you find out that they don't get violent very often. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about like being really, if, if, if that's one of your excellences, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it seems to have it seems to create some sort of respect for anger and violence in the people that practice those martial arts at a high level. And when I read about Achilles, when I read Achilles kind of keeping cool, like you said, in the face of these things, that's kind of what I think about. Mm-hmm. Like, he, like he knows how bad it could get if he really gets mad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and Agamemnon seems to me to be much more capricious and childlike and uh, uh, rageful. Yeah, one of, my, uh, one of my CEOs in the Marine Corps uh, had this, you know, saying it's like the guy you got to worry about 
if you're about to get in the bar fight, isn't the guy that's like running around with inflatable lat syndrome and talking trash. Right. It's the guy standing right behind him with the big smile on his face. <laughs> right. Who's just going, when do we get to fight? When do we get to fight? <laughs> yeah, which is not Agamemnon. <laughs> There's a line in here I wanted you to, to, to uh, pick apart for me. Sure. Back at 28. And by the way, I'm reading uh, the Fagels Iliad here. Uh, I think same. you are too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back, it's about line 28. And they're mm-hmm. talking about uh, Bucolion. Mm-hmm. Is that like bucolic? I mean, Is I share a root. Yeah, I think it's the same root. Yeah. He says, tending his flocks one day, Bucolion took the nymph in a strong surge of love, and beneath his force, she bore him twin sons. Am I reading that right? Was there not much foreplay? <laughs> yeah, it seems like that there was wasn't that a, some, uh, there wasn't any candles or a bottle of wine ahead of time. Was that some of that stuff that we might call surprise sex? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you know, I, I feel like isn't maybe it's in a different part that I'm thinking of, but I feel like Thetis gets mentioned. I guess it's not that one. I want to be on the lookout for that one. Eurelis killed Dressus, killed Opheltius, turned and went for Pedasus and Asepus. Twins, the nymph of the spring Arborea, bore Bucolion. Yeah, so the, the, you're, you're wondering about the, the naming there? Well, the, the naming and then uh, it seems like a little euphemism like uh, yeah. Bucolion uh, forced himself upon the nymph. Mm-hmm. Arborea. Tending yeah. flocks took them up in a strong surge of love beneath his force. She bore him twin sons. But now the son of Mesistus hacked the force from beneath them both and loosened their gleaming limbs and tore the armor off the dead man's shoulders. I mean, I think this is also where you get like... So all of these... I mean, you know, this... I didn't actually... I'm sorry. Were you going somewhere with that? Because well, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm interested because he says beneath his force, she bore him two twins. I'm mm-hmm. like, hmm, a little... For, you know, right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But then, Mesistus hacked the force from beneath them both. Like, is this some sort of, like, sense of life? that's like life force or will or some sort of, um, some sort of effusive energy? Like, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what it's about. It's interesting. I, it's certainly interesting the way that it's worded. And I would... A couple of things... Need a Greek, we need a Greek nerd in here. A couple of things spring to mind. Um, you know, first is the Eros Thanatos, right? Mm. That close relationship between sex and death. Um, and, you know, Hector... Or Homer certainly um, was probably not the first person to figure it out, but probably the first person to put it in in these terms and tie together sex and death so much. I mean, the whole thing is the whole story is based on sex and the resulting death. Um, so seeing these kind of late motifs sprinkled in, um, to remind us that this is basically because notionally because of Helen, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think is helpful to me to kind of remind it. The other thing that's jumping out to my mind is, uh, the Oscar, Oscar Wilde quote of, um, Everything is everything is about sex except for sex. Sex is about power, <laughs> mm. which is always a little. Then the first time I heard that, even though it was from Oscar Wilde, the first time I heard that was like in season one of House of Cards, um, and I was like, "That's a good quote." There's no way those writers wrote that, and then right. figured out that it was Oscar Wilde. Um, I think that the other thing that's jumping out at me as far as the names, 
Um, and I actually didn't know this until about four years ago, which was probably four years after I'd finished um, St. John's, was that all of all of the main characters' names translate to just something very pedantic. You know, mm-hmm. like Agamemnon is just Great King, Achilles is just Swift Runner, um, Odysseus is just Wanderer. Like it, and so you, you th- and, and I didn't really, and I kind of knew that, like Achilles, Swift Runner, but I, I had just read, you know, an essay about like all of these names are just, um, they are like. Um, they're like Native American names. Native American names or, you know, or deer really killer. T- or know. like fairy tale names, really. I mean they're they're just they're they're just kind of these placeholders, I think, for the you know, whoever was reciting this to kind of remember this is this person's main character attribute, you know, to be able to tell them apart and to be able to remember like, okay, yeah, this is the Swift Runner guy, this is the Great King guy. But they're all very caricature y to a certain extent. Um, so to see something like Bucolion, you know, as bucolic, um, I'm sure if my Greek was better, which it's not that, you know, Euryleus and Dressus and Ophiltius and all these kind of things, you know, would potentially have some bearing on the story. Unfortunately, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm that nerdy as, as far as a wannabe that nerdy, <laughs> right. um, I actually spent part of the summer this past summer taking a Attic Greek course at University of Dallas just because I was like, what, f- four hours a day, f- uh, four I'm days in. a week for five weeks? Sold. Like, no problem. Um, but we didn't do many, we didn't do many Homeric names. Um, yeah, but I want to get, I do want to get to um, Andromache and Hector because I'd love to figure, I'd love for you to mm. kind of tease out why this appeals to you so much because... I, I think I have a different kind of why it's interesting to me. So I'd, I'd love to get, you know, why this jumped out of you, why you picked it, why the scene kind of makes, uh, kind of resonates with you. How long are we going to go here? However long you want, man. Oh, okay. Um, well, first, well, okay, we'll go there and we'll come back to, uh, we'll come back to Helen and, uh, Helen and Hector as well. Um, yeah. Uh, Everybody in here, you know, like you said, they have these names that kind of describe some primary attribute. But everybody has like a, a appellation in here too: Swift, Swift-footed Achilles, um, uh, Hector of the Shining Helm, or whatever. Uh, we need those, by the way. Yeah, we need those. That would be um, cool. Yeah, but I, I, we'd have to. Somebody else would have to give me mine. I, I can't do that. <laughs> um, I, I love those appellations. But uh, Hector has been sent off of the battlefield. He's the, arguably the finest warrior for the Trojans and which is interesting. They pulled him off off and said, Hey, go 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 back into the city here and tell all the ladies, the older ladies, uh, to get the finest robe that they can find. Go to, to uh the temple of Athena and um and uh, you know uh, offer it as a sacrifice and then make these prayers. So he he goes to do that and he ends up going back to his apartments and meeting with Andromache and his uh, Andromache and his infant son. And again, these names: Andromache, Manfighter, right? Uh, so Hector and his wife are meeting in their apartment, and uh, she says, uh, "You don't have to go back out there. You don't have to go do this. Um, you know, stand up here on the ramparts and uh, and fight from there." There's no need to go out there, and she doesn't say this in the book, but this is the t- this is year ten. The walls have held, and and the only really about the only bit of strategy that's discussed in the entire book is from her. 
um, there at about line 510 or so. She says, you know, take your stand on the rampart over here um, and then take the armies up where the wild fig tree stands because there the city lies most open to assault. The walls are low or more easily overrun. Three times they've tried that point, um, but they didn't make it. She's like, you don't have to go out here and do this. The walls will hold. Do this. Everything will be fine. And he's, no, he doesn't do it. Um, Hector nodded, his helmet flashing. All this weighs on my mind too, dear woman, but I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing their long robes and I would shrink from battle now a coward. You know, he can't, they can't do defense. They just can't do it. It's not in their culture. They, they can't do that. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm a, so they have this out, and I think she's making reasonable arguments. But I think to the ancient Greek, they are, in fact, womanly arguments. And he rejects them all. And, uh, and then at the end of the little argument that they have, um, he, he, he says, uh, he pretty much says at about line 50 that he knows that he'll be killed. And... And that the, well, then the earth comes piling over my body before I hear your cries. I hear you dragged away. And uh, he, anyway, he knows how it's going to end. And he just, he goes anyway. And before he leaves, he's got his helmet on. He looks down at the, at the boy. And uh, the boy's scared by his helmet, mm-hmm. like the horse hair crest. And the boy starts crying. And he takes it off. And the boy calms down. And he kisses him. And then he eventually goes. And the thing that, that, um, I mean, the whole thing is heartbreaking to me. The whole, the whole argument between the two of them is heartbreaking. And um, one of the things that always comes to my mind is uh, my dad was an E-9 in the Air Force. He retired as an E-9. And, and when, when dad had his uniform on, he was Sergeant Hambrick. <laughs> and we didn't, I mean, we weren't interested in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now he took his uniform off. He gave him 30 minutes, and then you, know, and then you could have a a conversation with the person mm-hmm. but as long as the uniform on it's not the case mm-hmm. and so when he takes the helmet off you know and then the, then then he can then he can be a father for a mm-hmm. minute um but he puts the helmet back on and he prays places his son in the arms of his loving wife and uh, against my fate no one alive has ever escaped it essentially turns on his heel and goes back out um, and she knows he's a fool the whole time. They both know what's going to happen. She knows he's a fool. And uh, he does it anyway. Insane. Insane. It, it is, it's a little crazy. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this. In, in this and we, we, we jump to this. Um, and I, I want to go back so we can hit it again. Because he goes uh, to basically tell his mom hmm. like, Hey, go offer, go make some offerings to Athena and pray, um, that we might pull this off. And then he goes to find Paris cause Paris is like slinking ah. in the rear with the gear. Right. And Paris acts all shifty, you know, around three ninety. as Paris does, um, as Paris does. And, and says, uh, but, but says, ah, Hector, you criticize me fairly. Yes. Nothing unfair beyond what I deserve. Um, and he's like, okay, so I'm, I'll, I'll come with you or maybe you go ahead and I'll catch up, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, and then Helen, you know, starts just kind of talking trash about Paris and herself, you know, um, this is a big come on, right? 
It's a big what? It's a big come on from her, right? How so? She's like, bitch that I am, whore that I am. Here, come sit here. Come sit by <laughs> me. Here, have a seat, man. Um, and you're the one hardest hit by this fighting, Hector. You're you more than all, and all for me, whore that I am. And this blind Paris, all the two of us. Ah, uh, come here and have a seat. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, and I he's mean, like, don't ask me to sit that. beside you here. Love me as you do. You don't. You can't persuade me now. No time. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And so the, but this this is what's super interesting is that, you know, he he is he is charged with his brother by his brother Helenus, who's the seer that says you got to go pray to Athena to go and get this set up, right? And you already mentioned that's a little weird. It's like that send a runner to do right. that. You need your general on the battlefield. So his brother sends him to the rear and says, you know, um, you know, make these offerings. Then Hector decides to go see Paris, right? Hector makes that decision. And then once he's done that, he then makes the decision to go see his wife, which is kind of interesting because he goes to Paris, who's hanging out with his wife, and says, what's wrong with you? Get your gear on. Get to the front. I'm going to go see my wife. Right. <laughs> and so that's a little strange. And then, you know, he has this. What's what's also strange to me is, is, is the part you read uh, where he seems very, um, very much resigned to the fact that Troy will fall. You know, uh, he says at five thirty, for in my heart and soul I also know this well: the day will come when sacred Troy must die. Priam must die, and all his people with him. Priam hurls the strong ash spear. Even so, it is less the pain of Trojans still to come that weighs me down. Yada 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 yada. Um, and that's when he says, you know, the, if if Andromache is taken, that that's the thing that would really cause him a, a great deal of pain, which is kind of what you read. So he's got, you know, and so he's talking to his wife, and he's like, this is not going to end well. Yeah. This is not going to go well. I'm probably going to die. Um, and then he gets up to leave, and Paris, you know, shows up at the tower right as Hector's about to walk out to the battlefield. So that's kind of interesting to me that for all of Hector's nobility that we see in multiple places in the story and in his speech right here to a certain degree a resigned you know to death but still nobility him and Paris show back up to the battlefield at the same time yeah it's <laughs> which is curious Paris is such a mincing <clears throat> dear brother look at yeah. me holding you back and all your speed dragging my feet coming to you mm -hmm. so late and you told me to be quick yeah but I totally agree however <laughs> they both show up at the battlefield at the same they time. get there C curious and then the other thing that was super curious, I'd love to get your take on this, is the end of that book um, where Paris, um, you know, it says, you know, dear me, dear brother, look, the part you just read, holding you back and all your speed, dragging my feet, coming you so late and you told me to be quick. What Paris doesn't know is like Hector just left his wife, so he's not, wasn't waiting for him necessarily. Right. He was just about to leave and also spending time with his wife, just like Paris was doing. So there's an interesting thing there. But then... Uh, then he like bolsters up Paris a little bit. Impossible man. How could anyone fair and just underrate your work in battle? You're a good soldier, but you hang back of your own accord, refuse to fight. And that's that's what the heart inside me aches when I hear our Trojans heap contempt on you, the men who bear such struggles all for you. Come now for attack. We'll set all this to right someday. If Zeus will ever let us raise the wine bowl of freedom high in our halls, high to the gods of cloud and sky who live forever once we drive these Argives geared for battle out of Troy. That, what is he doing there? 
well, he's got to, I, I guess he's got to attend to Paris's morale. You know, he uh, would do, I, I'm sure if he browbeat him at this point, you know, he'd remember that he had forgotten something back at his, uh, back at his place and, uh, and, and split. I mean, I, I think he's being a good leader here. Um, especially because on the, on the page before there around 580, he says, uh, no man will hurl me down to death against my fate. Uh, you know, he, he, he thinks the die is cast and it's just, it's just his role to just play it out to the end. And so I, I don't think that he has any illusion that Paris is going to turn the tide or not. Like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Oh, Paris showed up. Well, then he must have, he was supposed to have showed up. Oh, Paris didn't show up. Oh, he must not have been ordained to show up. Like it's just, it's, it's all a flow chart with no branches for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but but uh, Paris shows up. He must think, you know, he must uh, have to bol- bolster his his confidence, and he probably thinks if he showed up, it's a good omen. The fate must have ordained that he would show up, and now they have one more decent so- shoulder, soldier ahead of, uh, of them. I, I I don't know. The whole thing's confounding. I mean, I, I'm I'm hearkening back, uh, as I'm sure many readers of the Iliad have, to uh, Team America. Um, the Matt Parker and Trey Stone movie where, um, you know, at, during, during the puppet sex scene, uh, she makes him promise that he'll never die before (laughs) they, they get intimate and he looks her in the eyes and says, I promise I'll never die. And so it just seems very strange to me that to his wife, he's like, I'm probably going to die. You're probably going to get taken away in a slavery uh, our parents, your parents are already dead. My parents are going to be dead. Troy's going to fall. And that's that's what he says to his wife, right. which seems very strange. His, his wife then, is twice the man Paris is, though. Well, that's totally valid. That's completely valid, you know. You know, um, I have these young guys that come for barbell training and, you know, in the great books, online great books and stuff, and they talk mm-hmm. to me. And, and every now and then somebody will say, hey, I'm getting ready to ask Susan to marry me, you know, any mm-hmm. advice. They've been married almost 25 years. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're still married. I guess we don't suck at it. So they ask. <laughs> and I always tell these guys, it's really hard, you know? Like, best case scenario, the two of you are going to bury all of your parents, and one of you is going to bury the other one. Best case. And it only gets worse from that. You know? Like, hopefully you don't have to bury any kids, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, in 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 some way, Hector and Andromache's story is all of our story. Our parents aren't going to make it. Troy is going to fall. Things don't turn out well, and hopefully, we have a good time. We have fulfilling existences. In the meanwhile, you know, we walk the earth for our three score and ten or whatever the heck it is, and hopefully, it's okay. Um, There seems to be a metaphor in there, in 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 his honesty with her, uh, that you know plays out in in my life. But in the story, they have the pressing the pressing problem of the archives at the gate. Um, I don't know if I'm reading too much in it. I'm too literary theory there. Um, but these relationships are tough, and the parents go, and we go, and it's all but fleeting, and we still have our tasks in front of us, you know. And he's kind of. He's kind of okay with that. Um, but I also hate him for it. I also hate him for not staying on the rampi- ramparts and uh, reinforcing the section of the wall by the fig tree. 
Mm-hmm. Hate him for it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... Is this where we talk about uh, uh, land wars in Southeast Asia or the Middle East? <laughs> like, you don't have to leave the walls? See, I figured that's what... I knew. I know you knew I was a Marine, so I thought you were expecting that. that that's why I went with the Team America World Press right. uh, never, reference. Never that, you know, you never would have seen that right. coming. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, that's probably a good place to end it. I think that's a nice uh, kind of bow tie on it. Um, realizing that you know that that the reason we spend so much time with these books is that you can just do this for hours and hours and hours, and you know, as I, as I say, you know, to Marines and military folks, you know, we have these things called terminal learning objectives, and because you know, uh, learning has an end, and, and Marine Corps land exactly, and an objective, yeah, right, and you know, part of my sales pitch for combat and classics, and you know, looking at great books like onlinegreatbooks.com is that there is no terminus to these books. There is no end to these ideas. How many of you, how many times have you read the Iliad? Spitball it. More, 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 I, at least 20, like all the way yeah, through. I haven't read it. I've probably read it five to seven times. I haven't read it 20. Um, but every time I read it, it's a different thing. You know, there is, there's no terminus, you know, it, it's a different yeah. thing. I, um, do you have you have you had the same copy? Do you read the same copy again and again? Uh, no, I've read, uh, I've read the Fitzgerald one, I've read, I've read the old. Ah, which one is it that's in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica set? I've read that one. It's mm. not that one's not Fitzgerald. Uh, I've read three or four different editions. I, I is it Emily Wilson? Is that a new one, a newer one that came yeah. out? I read that. I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and go on record. Rubbish. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've read several different versions. I um I have an old Fagel's copy that I read for the first time. I want to say around two thousand two, um, and it it's fascinating to you know there there's a there's a plaque in um in Bar Buchanan Hall at St John's with a few quotes from uh, Stringfellow Bar in there, and one of them is you know uh, we are asked often why we return to these books uh and and read them with such diligence and the answer or it, it, oh man i knew i was going to butcher it because it's such a weird quote and the way he talks is very like 1930s-esque but the point of the quote is you know the reason we read these books is because these books dear reader are about you right and you can get that in the text but i also love reading my old notes that I have from that one because I still have it. I, it's soaking wet. I spilled wine on it at some point and like it got the whole half of the thing soaked but I kept it because in 2002 I was a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps um, and I'm reading my notes in this thing and I'm just like, oh, 2002, Brian, you are adorable. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the little notes I'm making in here which are so simplistic and don't really go beyond the surface at all. Because uh, I'm reading it by myself for the first time, uh, versus you know some of the notes at least uh, that I'm reading in this newer edition that isn't wine soaked, um, <laughs> are a little bit different. But you get so much about who you are when you read this stuff. You can see, not just about the author. Up here, here's my autographed Stringfellow Bar picture. Oh, right on. And then right here is my uh, letter and autograph from John Erskine. This is a Buchanan. Signature up there, yeah. There you go. I have the wor- there you I have go, the Johnny's. world's largest great books <laughs> autograph collection. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, 
uh, Mortimer Adler. I got three or four books he signed. Um, I don't. I don't know if you. Um, if, if you have that stuff, then you've probably seen the St. John's kind of ad poster thing that we had for like around twenty years, right. which was just a photo of the books, and it's these are the uh, these are the you know pr- these are the teachers returning this semester. Um, I actually have it in my other room, but I have it framed. I have a painting of that ah. that somebody painted me. Um, yeah, which I love dearly. So, so, uh, so we just drilled down on six or eight sentences and speculate about, you know, whatever. Is that useful? Well, I mean, let, let's go back to your last um, podcast on, on leisure. Yeah. <laughs> right. What is, what is the difference um, between usefulness and what it means to be human? Right. Yeah, uh, so we did a podcast, uh, my partner Carl Shoot and I did a show on the Online Great Books podcast about uh, Joseph Pieper's book, um, the title's Leisure, The Basis of Culture, and uh, Pieper ha- makes an argument for leisure, which isn't laying on your ass, not for Pieper. Uh, leisure is um, the thoughtful undertaking of non-economic activity. Um and, and, and he says that that, that non economic activity is really a distinctly human thing. You know, animals have to forage, animals have to sleep. Um, humans, the rational animal, uh, really are the only things that can do that. And in that, there's a div- divinity in that, in that leisure. There are these, these wonderful things that we think of as culture building arise. And um, being somebody who is not. I mean, I ain't writing the next great book or even the next bad book. Uh, I'm no Michelangelo. Um, So for me, I think that um, one of the best uses of my leisure time is contemplating the the, the product of these other people's leisure. Like how many many leisure hours, non-economic hours, were invested to get that book, this book that we looked at today, into our hands? It's been around for what three thousand years. How many times was it hand copied? I mean, yeah, I love that when you guys were talking about that, that hand copying. You know that 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 is part of the selection crit- criteria. Um, you know that on, on a lot of these ancient texts was somebody went, "Oh no, write this down." Like my grand, I will pay you to write this down. My grandkids this have, needs to stick. Around. My grandkids have got to have it. Yeah, you know. We kill 150 sheep, skin them, make parchment, write this thing out by hand. You know, you know it's that that whole Lindy effect thing. You know, the Lindy effect that says mm-hmm. you know, the older something is, the more likely it will be to get even older yet. And um, mm-hmm. that great filter of time and effort hands these mm-hmm. things to us. And um, that's another thing I cry about. I think about all these people that just you know sometimes they had to hide these books to not get killed. Mm-hmm. Some of these books were dangerous to have, and they hid them and mm-hmm. risked. Um, life and economic danger to to make sure that we could have them and uh, uh, and I think contemplating the things in here like how many thousands of people decided that we needed this you know and uh, yeah sp- spending a little time to contemplate it seems like uh, the responsible thing to do to me yeah plus it's fun plus it's fun it is fun it's really frustrating too 
It's really, really frustrating too. It is, but I mean, that's, <clears throat> you know, it's, 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 and you and I have commented about this, you know, off, off the, off the mics of, you know, the similarity between physical training, um, and, you know, this kind of study of liberal arts, like, and it's, I think it is one of those things where, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours on the simplest thing. And then you have that moment where you kind of get it and it opens something up, but then you got to keep going and practicing it more and more and more to keep it right. You know? And so that's returning to some of these books is you have these moments where you're like, Oh, and the whole kind of work. And it seems the world opens up to you at that moment. But then you come back to it a year later and you're like, wait, what was I thinking about well, yeah. in this book six? So 2002, you know, you made all of your um, sweet, oh, adorable naive, notes. Uh, adorable, notes. naive notes. But were yeah. you wrong? No way. That's the beauty of it is, well, I, you know, I, I, it, it, I think it's, it's that, you know, everything you look at through your own lens, you know, you're the, you're the main character in your movie. Um, and it's, I think it's more looking at what I was thinking about in 2002, um, you know, being active duty Marine, getting ready to go to like Iraq or Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and, you know, reading the Iliad. That's, that's a moment, you know? (laughs) And, and so everything, all of those notes had to do with that as my immediate near term future. Um, How could it not have been that? Right. But I, I also think it's kind of adorable how, I don't know, just, just, <laughs> I remember there at some point, I, I don't have it in front of me, but at some point I vividly remember uh, writing like maneuver warfare exclamation point on, <laughs> <laughs> on like, you know, in the margins of, of, you know, one of the, one of the books. And so I, I flip back and see that and I'm just like, oh, Brian, you were, you were adorable. There's very little tactic or strategy in the thing though there's a lot of hurling rocks and yeah. a lot of lashing out and uh, well that that's that's a marine corps tactic we called it hey diddle diddle right up the middle yeah <laughs> a lot of that that that's not maneuver warfare but um we we went in doubt hey diddle diddle right up the middle was uh, as an oft used tactic don't don't just stand there do something yeah y- y- you know, you're 2002, Brian. You know, you get whatever you get from the book. Um, and it met you right there. It mm-hmm. met you right there. And, and mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been in seminars with ER nurses, you know, and it's a, it's an, I mean, they get something from the book that I wouldn't have gotten if, uh, if they hadn't been in there with me. And then, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, any Vietnam War vets, you know, in a seminar discussing the Iliad. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, it, it, the book meets whoever, wherever they are. Um, uh, our oldest, I believe he's our oldest online great books member. I think he's 84. And, um, he has things to say about Priam in this book that were without him being there were inaccessible, inaccessible to me. Things about uh, his posterity and concern for the kids and the culture at large. And then looking back on the, at the end of life, looking back on life that you've already lived, um, the book just meets everybody exactly where they are. 14 year old kids are like, this is the most amazing action adventure story ever. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's astounding. And then, and then, like you said, you go look at, look back at your notes and you're like, what's what the hell's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Scott, um, thank you so much for having me on to teach for you. I'm really looking forward to it. Or, or participate is really yeah. We, if uh, somebody teaches, I'll, I'll, I'll show up and make I'll show up and make sure that the videos are all working, right? <laughs> and occasionally ask a question. Yeah, one of uh, one of our tenets is if we catch one of our seminar hosts teaching, they're fired. <laughs> it's a good policy. Yeah, there's nothing you know? to teach here. You know, no. Yeah, so we, we just have read the, it and talk about. We it. have these seminar hosts, and they're they're there to ask good questions, to mm-hmm. uh, ask people to clarify their thoughts, and and uh, um, make sure that. People, at least, you know, Adler says, move from a state of less understanding to one of more understanding. You know, the goal is just to help people move to a uh, state of more understanding and hopefully help people know why they think the things they think. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we do our K through twelve and maybe four or six or eight more or whatever, and um, I think we all think a lot of things or believe a lot of things, but don't necessarily know why, and just get kind of mm-hmm. gets poured in our ear from like. <laughs> the very beginning and uh oh, yeah. it's important to uh, use these books to uh kind of help pick that stuff apart and at least you know if not change your mind at least make you support what you think you you do believe yeah. our little uh our little logo is a shield and there's a book on the thing duh and a brain like a half of a brain on there and there's an anvil because uh carl shoot who works with us there he he says that the book's uh, or an anvil that you just beat yourself you know, on uh, to make yourself into a better tool for living. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. That's what you guys ought to do. If you guys don't do this, if you haven't put together a group of people to do this with, you're lazy and missing out. You're screwing up. And if you don't have any friends, then you can join us because we'll, we'll get you some friends. We'll put you together with some a ready-made kit of friends. Um, you know, a lot of people don't. They have a lot of friends, but they don't have six people that want to do this with them. You know, they, they can't get a quorum yeah. together. They live in Manhattan. There's nowhere to do it. Um, so if you if you can't find a way to do that for yourselves, uh, come join us. We'll help you do it. Onlinegreatbooks.com backslash combat. 25% off first three months. Do you not think Helen was trying to seduce him? Not, I think that she, well, there's there's a seduction potential. Um, there's also a, you know, when people are under a great deal of strain, they go with what they know. Right. And so if you are, uh, a woman who has the power to seduce men, even if you don't want to do it, wait a minute, is there a woman that doesn't have that power? That's valid. Uh, but if you're a woman that's good at it and you've done it a lot, and you're under a great deal of strain, you might fall back on that as your default setting, whether or not you really have a clear end state in mind. Yeah. There, so I think that it's possible that he, that's what's happening. Yeah. But there's, there's the why. There doesn't seem to be an end state. There doesn't seem to be a goal. So she's like, mm-hmm. okay, if I get this to happen, what? Then what? There's certainly not that mm-hmm. there. But, you know, one of the big, anytime, um, anytime we do a seminar for people that have read this the first time, um, one of the big questions is, is this Helen's fault or is she a victim? And I think that passage right there is crucial in starting to understand Helen's role in the thing. And I've read it seven times. You've read it 20. Do you know what her role is? No. I'm, I'm not real sure either. Uh, no. But she, uh, I, think, I think I can say this. She wasn't just whacked on the head with a club and drugged back to the cave by her hair. <laughs> it, it's not... Cut and dried like that. 
she yeah. has a role somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Good times. All right. Good times. Yeah. I'm glad somebody else says that because I get in trouble for saying good times a lot. All right, Scott. Thanks a lot. OnlineGreatBooks.com, everybody. Backslash combat. Looking forward to seeing everybody. We kick off in January 2020. Go on. Yeah, stop. Oh stop God. not reading. Go 